Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is June 10th, 2008, which, uh, had she lived this long, would be my mother's 93rd birthday. In addition, today marks the third anniversary of these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. So, uh, actually, I guess we've now completed three years of podcasting, and uh, today technically marks the beginning of our fourth year. And all of these podcasts wouldn't have been uh, possible without the help of uh, many of our fellow saloners who have made donations to help offset the expenses associated with delivering these podcasts to literally tens of thousands of people in over a 100 countries. And uh, a couple of days ago, we received donations from the Jason Bennett Actors Workshop and from Sarah I. That uh, together was almost precisely the amount we needed to complete our third consecutive break-even year. So uh, a big thank you to Sarah and uh, to the Jason Bennett Actors Workshop and to all of our other generous donors over the past three years. I quite uh, literally couldn't have done it without you, uh, all of you. So uh, thank you again. Now, as I was looking through my files to uh, see who we would feature as a guest lecturer today... I almost uh, immediately was drawn to a lecture that was sent to me by several saloners and uh, one that I believe is also available at the Internet Archive. It's a talk given by Aldous Huxley in March of 1962, and uh, so I think it may be the oldest lecture I've played here in the salon. I realize that uh, most of our fellow saloners uh, know who Aldous Huxley was through some of his more famous books like brave new world and uh, what he considered his finest work, Island. But it was the doors of perception for which the psychedelic community best remembers him. In fact, uh, that was the first psychedelic book I ever read. When it was first published in 1954, it may have been the first openly positive book written uh, about our sacred medicines since uh, early in the century. And, uh, at least in my humble opinion, the publication of that slim little volume is uh, what actually kicked off the modern psychedelic movement. As one of the West's leading intellectuals, Huxley's opinions were respected by just about everybody. He was uh, a pillar of society, and uh, the fact that he was one of the first celebrity supporters of psychedelics uh, certainly qualifies him as uh, one of the founding fathers of our community. So, uh, in my ongoing attempt to get us all up to speed on the early history of our movement, I'm going to play this lecture that uh, Aldous Huxley gave at the University of California at Berkeley, where I believe he was a visiting professor at the time. And since uh, over half of our fellow saloners weren't even born back then, I should probably remind you that uh, when this talk was given, Timothy Leary and Ramdas were still at Harvard, the Beatles had not yet played in America, John Kennedy was the president, and for what it's worth, I was uh, just completing my second year of college. And things were still pretty buttoned down back then. Rock and roll was uh, finally beginning to take hold of our consciousness and shake us out of the 50s doldrums, and eventually lead us to Woodstock, the anti-war movement, and the civil rights campaigns. But my guess is that uh, none of those future events were uh, even expected or anticipated on that Tuesday afternoon in Berkeley when Aldous gave this talk. 
Nor did uh, anyone expect that a year and a half later, uh, Kennedy would be murdered uh, on the same day that Aldous Huxley died. And uh, so Huxley passed without much notice in the press, but uh, for many of us, uh, at least in retrospect, it now seems that our greatest loss that day was the passing of the father of the modern psychedelic movement. If you remember in last week's podcast, I think it was Terrence McKenna who stated the obvious fact that the primary moving force of uh, what we now call the 60s was the widespread use of uh, LSD and other psychoactive substances that effectively broke down our mind barriers and allowed us to think for ourselves and question authority, all authority. It was a much different world back then, uh, as you will be able to tell right now when we listen to one of my heroes, Aldous Huxley. Guest, Mr. Aldous Huxley, renowned essayist and novelist who, during the spring semester, is residing at the university in his capacity as a Ford Research Professor. Mr. Huxley has recently returned from a conference at the Institute for the Study of Democratic Institutions in Santa Barbara, where the discussion focused on the development of new techniques by which to control and direct human behavior. Traditionally, it has been possible to suppress individual freedom through the application of physical coercion, through the appeal of ideologies, uh, through the manipulation of man's physical and social environment, and more recently through the uh, techniques, the cruder techniques of psychological conditioning. The ultimate revolution about which Mr. Huxley will speak today concerns itself with the development of new behavioral controls which operate directly upon the psychophysiological organisms of man, that is, the capacity to replace external constraint by internal compulsions. As those of us who are familiar with Mr. Huxley's works well know, this is a subject with which he has been concerned for for quite a period of time. Uh, Mr. Huxley will make a presentation of approximately half an hour followed by some brief discussions and questions by the two panelists sitting to my left, uh, Ms. Lillian Rivlin and Mr. John Post, and Mr. Huxley. Thank you. Uh, first of all, the, uh, I'd like to say that the conference at Santa Barbara was not directly concerned with the control of the mind. That was... Uh, a conference, there have been two of them now at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco, one this year which I didn't attend and one two years ago where, where there was a considerable discussion on this uh, subject. At Santa Barbara we were talking about technology in general and the, um, the effects it's likely to have on society and the problems uh, related to uh, technological, uh, transplanting of technology and uh, technology into underdeveloped countries. Well, now, in regard to this problem of, uh, of the ultimate revolution, uh, this has been very well summed up by the moderator. Uh, in the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing uh, the environment in order to change the individual. I mean, there's been the... Uh, political revolution, the economic revolution, uh, in the time of the Reformation, the religious revolution, uh, all these uh, aimed, as I say, not directly at the human being, but at his surroundings, so that by modifying the surroundings you did achieve, uh, in, 
at one remove an effect upon the human being. Today, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on the mind body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, some kind of direct action on human mind bodies has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, but this has generally been uh, of a violent nature. The techniques of terrorism have been known from time immemorial, and uh, w people have employed them with more or less uh, ingenuity, sometimes with uh, the utmost crudity, sometimes with a, a good deal of skill inquire, uh, acquired uh, by a process of trial and error, finding out what the best ways of uh, using torture, imprisonment, uh, constraints of various kinds. Uh, but uh, as um, I think it was Metternich said uh, many years ago, uh, you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. Uh, that if you are going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. It's exceedingly difficult to see uh, how pure terrorism can function indefinitely. It can function for a fairly long time, but I think uh, sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of, of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Well, it seems to me that the the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. And uh, this, is a, this is a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago a, a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the the devices at that time available and some of the devices which uh, uh, I imagined to be possible uh, making use of them in order to first of all to standardize the population to iron out uh, inconvenient human dis uh, um, differences uh, to create uh, so to say mass produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. And uh, since then, I have uh, con continued to be extremely interested uh, in this problem, and I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, that a uh, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution, this, this method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which 
by any decent standard they ought not to enjoy. Uh, this, I mean, the enjoyment of, uh, of servitude. Well, uh, this, um, this process, as I say, has uh, gone on for over, over the years, and um, I become more and more interested in what is happening. And here I would like uh, briefly to, uh, to compare what, the parable of Brave New World with uh, another parable which was put forth more recently uh, in uh, George Orwell's book, 1984. Uh, Orwell wrote his book between, I think, between 45 and 48, uh, at the time when the Stalinist uh, terror regime was still in full swing and just after the uh, collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime. And his book... Uh, which I admire greatly. It's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity. Uh, shows, uh, is so to say, a projection into the future of the immediate past, of what for him was the immediate past, and the immediate present. It was a projection into the future of a society uh, where control was exercised wholly by terrorism and uh, the violent uh, attacks upon the mind-body of individuals. Whereas uh, my own uh, book, which was written in, in 1932, when there was only a, a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini uh, in existence, was not overshadowed by the idea of terrorism. And uh, I was therefore free in a way which Orwell was not free, uh, to think about these other methods uh, of control, the, these um, non-violent methods. And my, I'm inclined to think that uh, the scientific dictatorships of the future, and I think there are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world, will be probably a good deal nearer to the brave new world pattern uh, than to the uh, 1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the scientific dictators, but simply because the Brave New World pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. That if you can uh, get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, the state of being, having their differences ironed out and being made uh, uh, amenable to mass production methods on the social level if you can do this then you have uh, you are likely to have a much more stable and much more lasting society uh, a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps uh, so that uh, my own feeling is that the 1984 picture uh, was tinged, of course, by the immediate past and the present in which Orwell was living, but that the, that the past and present of those years does not represent, I feel, the likely trend of what is going to happen. Needless to say, we shall never get rid of terrorism. This will always find its way to the surface. But I think that insofar as dictators 
become more and more scientific, more and more concerned with a technically perfect, uh, perfectly running society, uh, they will be more and more interested in the kind of techniques which uh, uh, I imagined and described from existing realities uh, in Brave New World. So that uh, uh, it seems to me then that this ultimate revolution is really not very far away, that we already the a number of the techniques for uh, bringing about this kind of control are here, and it remains to be seen uh, when and where and by whom uh, they will first be applied uh, in any large scale. And first, uh, let me talk about uh, a little bit about the improvement even in the techniques of, of terrorism. Uh, I think there, there have been improvements. That the uh, the um, uh, Pavlov, after all, made some extremely profound observations, both on animals and on human beings. And he found, uh, among other things, that, uh, uh, that uh, conditioning uh, techniques applied to animals or humans in a state either of psychological or of physical stress uh, sank in, so to say, very deeply into the mind-body of the creature and were extremely difficult to get rid of, that they seem to be embedded more deeply than, than other forms of conditioning. And um, this, of course, uh, this fact, I think, was discovered empirically in the past. People did make use of, uh, of many of these uh, techniques. But uh, the difference between the, the old empirical intuitive methods and our own methods is the difference between uh, a sort of hit and miss uh, uh, craftsman's point of view and the genuinely scientific point of view. I mean, I think there is a real uh, difference between ourselves and, say, the inquisitors of the 16th century. We know much more precisely what we are doing uh, than they knew, and we can extend, because of our theoretical knowledge, we can extend uh, what we are doing over a wider area with a greater assurance of, of, uh, of being uh, uh, producing something which really works. In this context, I would uh, uh, like to mention the extremely interesting chapters in uh, uh, Dr. William Sargent's uh, um, Battle for the Mind, where he uh, points out how intuitively uh, some of the great uh, religious uh, teachers, leaders of the past, a hit on the Pavlovian method. He, he speaks specifically of Wesley's method of producing conversions, uh, which were essentially based upon a, a technique of, of heightening psychological stress to the limit by talking about hellfire, and so making people extremely vulnerable to suggestion, and then suddenly releasing this stress by offering hopes of heaven and uh, this is a very interesting chapter of showing how, uh, how completely, on, a, on purely intuitive and empirical grounds, a, a skilled natural psychologist, as Wesley was, uh, could discover these uh, Pavlovian uh, methods. Well, as I say, we now know the reason why these techniques worked, and uh, there is no doubt at all that we can, if we want to, uh, carry them much further 
than was possible in the past. And, of course, in the history of recent history of brainwashing, both as applied to uh, prisoners of war and to the uh, lower personnel within the Communist Party in China, uh, we see that the Pavlovian methods have been applied systematically and with, with, uh, evidently with extraordinary efficacy. I mean, I think there can be no doubt that uh, by the application of these methods, a very large army of totally devoted people uh, has been created. Uh, the, the conditioning has been driven in, so to say, um, by kind of psychological iontophoresis, uh, into the very depth of the uh, people's being and has got so deep that it's very difficult for it ever to be rooted out. And uh, these uh, methods, I, I think, are a real refinement on the older methods of terror because they combine methods of terror with methods uh, of uh, acceptance, method that the, the person who he is subjected to a form of, of terroristic stress, uh, but uh, for the purpose of inducing a kind of voluntary, quotes, um, acceptance of uh, the state, into, uh, the psychological state into which he has been driven, and the state of affairs within which he finds himself. So that, as I say, there has been, I think, a, a definite improvement, shall we say, uh, in the, even in the techniques of, of terrorism. Well, then we come to uh, the consideration of other techniques, of, of non-terroristic techniques for uh, inducing consent and for uh, inducing people to love their servitude. Uh, here, I mean, I think we can... Uh, I don't think I can possibly go into all of them because I don't know all of them, but I mean, I can mention a few of the more obvious uh, uh, methods uh, which uh, uh, can now be used and which uh, are based upon recent scientific findings. Uh, first of all, there are the uh, methods connected with uh, straight suggestion and, uh, and hypnosis. I think we know much more about this subject than was, was known in the past. People, of course, have always known about suggestion and although they didn't know the word hypnosis, uh, they certainly practiced it in uh, various ways. But we uh, have, I think, a much greater knowledge of the, the subject than in the past, and we, we can make use of our knowledge in ways which uh, I think the past was probably never able to make use of, make use of it. Uh, for example, one of the things we have, we now know for certain, is that there is... Uh, of course an enormous I mean this has been always known a very great uh, difference between individuals in regard to their suggestibility but we now I think uh, know pretty clearly the, the sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its uh, to its uh, suggestibility uh, it's very interesting when you look at the, the findings in different fields I mean in the field of hypnosis in the field of uh, administering placebos, for example, uh, in the field of general uh, suggestion uh, in states of drowsiness or of light sleep, you will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. 
Uh, you will find, for example, that the um, experienced uh, hypnotists uh, will tell one uh, that the number of people, the percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility, just like that, uh, is about 20-20%. That about uh, a corresponding number at the other end of the scale are, are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize. And that in between there lies a, uh, the, a large mass of people who can, with more or less uh, difficulty, be hypnotized. That, that uh, they can gradually be, if you work hard enough at it, be, be got into the hypnotic state. And in, in the same way, when, uh, the same sort of figures crop up again, for example, in relation to the administration of placebos. There were, a big experiment was carried out three or four years ago in the um, general hospital in Boston on post-operative cases where several hundred men and women uh, suffering comparable kinds of pain after serious operations uh, were allowed to, were given uh, injections whenever they asked for them, whenever the pain got bad, and the injections... Uh, 50% of the time were of morphia and 50% of the time were of distilled water. And about 20% of, of those uh, who uh, went through the experiment, about 20% of them got just as much relief from the distilled waters from the morphia. About 20% got no relief from the distilled water. And in between were those who got some relief or got relief uh, occasionally. So here again we see uh, an... an uh, the same sort of, uh, of distribution. And similarly, with regard to uh, what in Brave New World I call hypnopedia, which is the sleep teaching, uh, I was talking not long ago to a man who manufactures uh, records uh, which people can listen to in the, in, during the light part of sleep. I mean, these are records for, for getting rich, for sexual satisfaction, for... Uh, <laughs> confidence in salesmanship and so on and uh, he, he said it's uh, very interesting that uh, he, uh, he, these are records are sold on a money back basis and he says that uh, there is uh, regularly between 15 and 20 percent of people who write indignantly saying the records don't work at all and uh, he sends the money back at once uh, there are, on the other hand there are some uh, what over 20 percent who write enthusiastically, saying they're now much richer, their sexual life is much better, etc., etc. <laughs> and um, these, of course, are, are the dream clients, and they buy more of these records. And then in between are those who complain they're not getting much results, and they have to be, have letters written to them saying, well, go persist, my dear, go on, and you'll get there, and they generally... <laughs> they generally do get results in the long run. Well, as I say, this... Uh, on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that uh, the uh, human populations can be categorized according to their suggestibility fairly clearly. I, I suspect very strongly that this 20% is the same in all these, uh, these cases. And I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult uh, to recognize in very early childhood who were the, those who were extremely suggestible, who were those who were extremely unsuggestible, and who were those who uh, uh, occupied the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, 
um, organized society would be quite impossible. Uh, and if everybody were extremely suggestible, then um, uh, dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean, it's very fortunate we have people who are moderately suggestible in the majority and who therefore preserve us from dictatorship but do permit uh, uh, organized society to, uh, to be formed. But once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Uh, for example, uh, any demagogue who is able to get hold of a, a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any government in any country. And I mean, I, I think this, uh, uh, after all, we've had the most incredible uh, example in recent years of what can be done by efficient methods of, uh, of uh, suggestion and persuasion uh, in the form of Hitler. Uh, anybody who's uh, read, for example, Bullock's Life of Hitler uh, comes forth from this with a, a sort of horrified admiration for this infernal genius who, who really understood human weaknesses, I think, almost better than anybody, and who uh, exploited them with all the resources then available. I mean, he knew everything. I mean, for example, he knew intuitively uh, this uh, Pavlovian truth that uh, uh, conditioning installed in a state of stress or fatigue uh, it goes much deeper than conditioning installed at other times. This was why all his big speeches were organized at night. He speaks of this quite frankly, of course, in Mein Kampf. He says this was done solely because people are tired at night and therefore are much less... Uh, capable of resisting persuasion than they would be during the day. And uh, we see in all his uh, techniques, he, he was using, uh, he, he had discovered intuitively and by uh, uh, trial and error, great many of the, of the weaknesses which we now know about on a, in a sort of scientific way, I think much more clearly than he does, uh, than he did. Uh, but uh, the fact remains that uh, this differential suggestibility, uh, this uh, susceptibility to uh, hypnosis, I do think uh, has, is something which has to be considered very uh, carefully in relation to any uh, kind of thought about uh, um, democratic uh, government. I mean, if there are 20% of the people who can really be suggested into believing almost anything as evidently they can be uh, then we have to take uh, extremely uh, careful steps to prevent the uh, rise of demagogues who will uh, drive them on into uh, extreme positions and then organize them into very very dangerous uh, uh, armies, private armies which may overthrow the, overthrow the government well, this, as I say, is, is uh, 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 in this field of, of pure persuasion. I think we, uh, we do know much more than we did in the past. And obviously we now have uh, uh, mechanisms for multiplying the demagogue's voice and image uh, in a quite hallucinatory way. I mean, the television and the radio, Hitler was making enormous use of the radio. He could speak to millions of people simultaneously. Uh, I mean, this, this alone, of course, is, uh, creates an enormous gulf between the 
modern and the ancient demagogue. The ancient demagogue could only uh, appeal to as many people as his voice could reach by the yelling at, the, um, at his utmost, but uh, the modern demagogue can touch literally millions at a time. And, and of course, with his, the multiplication of his image, he can produce this kind of hallucinatory effect which uh, uh, is of, of enormous uh, uh, hypnotic and uh, suggest, uh, suggestive importance. But then there are, there are various other methods which one can think of which uh, uh, have, thank heaven, as yet not been used but which obviously could be used. Uh, there is, for example, the uh, pharmacological method. This, this was one of the things I... I talked about in Brave New World, I invented a hypothetical drug called Soma, which of course could not exist as it stood there because it was simultaneously a stimulant, a narcotic and a hallucinogen, which seems unlikely in one substance. But the point is that in several, if you applied several different substances, you could get almost all these results even now. Uh, and the really interesting thing about the new chemical substances, the new mind-changing drugs, is this, that whereas, uh, if you look back into history, it's clear that man has always uh, had a, a hankering after mind-changing chemicals. He has always desired to take holidays from himself. Uh, but the, uh, and this is a, the most extraordinary fact of all, is that every naturally occurring stimulant, narcotic, sedative, or hallucinogen was discovered uh, in before the dawn of history. I don't think uh, there is one single one of these naturally occurring ones which um, modern science has discovered. Modern science, of course, has discovered better ways of extracting the active principles from these drugs and, of course, has discovered numerous uh, ways of synthesizing new substances of extreme power. But the, uh, the actual discovery of these naturally occurring things was made by primitive men, goodness knows how many centuries ago. Uh, there is, for example, in the, uh, underneath the uh, lake dwellings, uh, the uh, early Neolithic lake dwellings which have been dug up in, the, uh, in Switzerland, we find poppy heads which looks as though people were already using this most ancient and powerful and most dangerous of narcotics, uh, even in the days before the rise of agriculture, so that man was apparently a dope addict before he was a farmer, which is a, <laughs> a, a, a very, very curious comment on human nature. Uh, but um, the difference, as I say, between the ancient mind changers, the traditional mind changers, and these new substances is that uh, they were extremely harmful, and the new ones are not. I mean, even the permissible mind changer, alcohol is not entirely harmless, as people may have noticed, uh, and uh, the, um, the other ones, the non-permissible ones, such as opium and cocaine, uh, opium and all its derivatives are very harmful indeed. Uh, they, they rapidly produce addiction and, uh, and in some cases uh, lead at an extraordinary rate to uh, physical degeneration and death. Um, whereas these, these new substances, uh, 
this is really very extraordinary the, that a number of these new mind-changing substances uh, can produce enormous revolutions within the mental side of our being and yet uh, do almost nothing to the physiological side. I mean, you can have a, an enormous um, revolution, for example, with um, LSD-25 or with uh, the newly synthesized drug uh, psilocybin, which is the active principle of the Mexican sacred mushroom. Uh, you can have this enormous uh, mental revolution with no more physiological revolution than you would get from drinking two cocktails. Uh, and, and this is a really a most extraordinary fact. And uh, uh, it is, of course, true that uh, pharmacologists are producing a great many wonder drugs which, uh, where the cure is almost worse than the disease. Uh, every uh, new edition of medical textbooks contains a, a longer and longer chapter on what are called iatrogenic diseases, that is to say diseases caused by doctors. Uh, and, um, <laughs> The, uh, and this is quite true uh, that the many of the wonder drugs are uh, extremely dangerous. I mean, they, they can produce extraordinary effects, and in critical conditions, they should certainly be used, but they should be used with the utmost caution. But there, there is a, evidently a whole class of drugs affecting the uh, central nervous system which can produce enormous uh, changes in. Uh, in sedation, in euphoria, in uh, energizing the whole mental process uh, without uh, doing any perceptible harm to the body. And in this sense, uh, this represents, it seems to me, the most extraordinary revolution that it's it, uh, uh, in the hands of a, uh, of a dictator or uh, these substances of one kind or another could be uh, used uh, in the most um, well with complete uh, first of all with, with complete harmlessness uh, and uh, the result would be that uh, um, I mean you can imagine a, a euphoric which would make people thoroughly happy even in the most abominable circumstances I mean the, these things are possible I mean this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, after all, this has even been true with the uh, crude old drugs. I mean, as a houseman years ago remarked, uh, apropos of Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, he says, uh, and beer does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. Uh, and beer is, of course, an extremely crude drug uh, compared with these ones, and to you can certainly say that some of the psychic energizers and the new hallucinants can do incomparably more than Milton and all the theologians combined could possibly do to make uh, the terrifying mystery of our existence seem more tolerable than it does. Uh, so that here uh, I think one has a, uh, an enormous uh, area in which the, uh, the ultimate revolution could function very well indeed. Uh, an area in which uh, a great deal of control could be used uh, by, not through terror, but through making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I have said before, uh, human beings uh, come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. 
and this I think is perfectly possible well then uh, very briefly let me speak about uh, one of the more recent uh, developments of, uh, uh, in the sphere of, uh, of neurology the, uh, the implantation of uh, electrodes in the brain uh, this of course has been done on a large scale in, uh, in animals and in, uh, in a few cases it's uh, been done in, hopeless, um, in cases of the hopelessly insane uh, and it is anybody who's uh, watched uh, the behavior of rats with electrodes planted in different centers uh, must uh, come away from this experience with the most extraordinary doubts about what on earth is in store for us if ever this is got hold of by a dictator if uh, the uh, I saw not long ago some rats uh, in Magoon's laboratory at UCLA uh, there were two sets of them one with electrodes planted in a pleasure center and these rats were the, the technique was that they had a bar which they pressed uh, and which um, turned on a very small current for a short space of time which uh, we had a wire connected with their electrode and which um, stimulated this pleasure center which was evidently absolutely ecstatic because these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day <laughs> uh, apparently if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion <laughs> uh, and they would neither eat nor be interested in the, uh, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing this bar uh, then the most extraordinary rats were those where the electrode was planted halfway between a pleasure and a pain center and where evidently the, the result was a kind of mixture of the most wonderful ecstasy in being on the rack at the same time <laughs> and you, you would see the rats sort of looking at its bar and sort of saying to be or not to be that is the question <laughs> finally would approach and do it and then it would this awful uh, I mean the, uh, if one can humanize or uh, anthropomorphize I mean he was feeling something terribly mixed and he would wait for quite a long time before pressing the bar again but he would always press it again I mean this was the the extraordinary thing and the, in the I notice in this um, most recent issue of Scientific American there's a very interesting article on electrodes in the brains of chickens uh, where the, the technique is, is very ingenious you, you sink into their brains a little um, socket with, with a screw on it and the electrode then can be screwed deeper and deeper into the brain stem and you can test at any moment according to the depth of, uh, which goes in fractions of a millimeter of what you're stimulating and, and these creatures are not merely uh, stimulated by wire they are fitted with a, a miniaturized radio receiver weighing less than an ounce which is attached to them so that they can be communicated with at a distance I mean they can run about in the barnyard and you can press the button and uh, the, this particular area of the brain to which the electrode has been screwed down to will be stimulated and <coughs> you will get these uh, fantastic phenomena that a, uh, a sleepy chicken will suddenly get up and rush about or a, 
uh, an active chicken will suddenly sit down and go to sleep or a hen will suddenly start sitting as though it were, uh, were hatching out an egg uh, or a rooster will start fighting or will suddenly go into a state of extreme depression. Uh, the, uh, the whole picture of the absolute control of the drives is, a, uh, is terrifying. And uh, in the cases, the few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable too. I was talking last summer to, uh, in England to Gray Walter, who is the um, most eminent exponent of the electroencephalogram techniques in England, and he was telling me that they, he's seen hopeless uh, inmates of asylums with these things in in their heads and that uh, these people were suffering from the uncontrollable depression and they were they'd had a, the electrodes inserted into something resembling evidently the pleasure center of the rat uh, anyhow when they felt too bad they just pressed a button in the battery in their pocket and he said the result was fantastic the mouth would go down would suddenly turn up and they would evidently feel for, I don't know for how long at a time very cheerful and happy so that <clears throat> here again one sees uh, the most uh, uh, extraordinary uh, revolutionary techniques uh, which are now available uh, to us now the, uh, I think what is obviously perfectly clear is that for the present these techniques are not being much used except in a purely experimental way but I think it is extraordinarily important uh, for us to realize first of all to, to realize what is happening to make ourselves acquainted with what has already happened and then to use a certain amount of, of, of imagination to extrapolate into the future uh, the sort of things that might happen I mean, what might happen if, uh, if these fantastically powerful techniques uh, were used by unscrupulous uh, people in authority? What on earth would, would happen? What, what sort of society would we get? And uh, I think this is peculiarly important uh, because as one sees in looking back over history, we have allowed in the past all those advances in technology which have profoundly changed uh, a social and individual life, we've allowed them to take us by surprise. I mean, it seems to me that uh, during the late 18th century and early 19th century when the uh, new machines were making possible the factory system, it was not beyond the wit of man to see what, the, uh, to look at what was happening and to project into the future and maybe to forestall the really dreadful consequences which plagued England and most of Western Europe and most of this country for about 50 or 60 years, the, the horrible abuses of the factory system. I mean, if a certain amount of forethought had been devoted to the problem at that time, if people had, first of all, found out what was happening and then used their imagination to see what might happen and then had gone on to work out means by which the worst uh, applications of the new techniques should not take place 
Well, then I think uh, Western humanity might have been spared about three generations of utter misery which was imposed upon the poor at that time. And uh, similarly with the various uh, technological advances now, I mean, it's quite clear we have to start thinking very, very hard about the problems of automation. Uh, and again, I think we have to think still more profoundly about the problems which may arise in relation to these new techniques which may contribute uh, to the, this ultimate revolution. Our business is to, first of all, as, as I say, to, to be aware of what is happening, then to use our imaginations to see what might happen, how this might be abused, and then, if possible, to see uh, that the enormous powers which we now possess, thanks to these um, uh, scientific and technological advances, uh, shall be used for the benefit of human beings and not for their ultimate degradation. Thank you. have a few moments. Uh, I'm very sorry, I've talked much too long. It's quite all right. It's mm. <laughs> a brief discussion, and those of you who are interested in, in staying and listening, I'm, I'm sure that uh, it'll be well worthwhile. John, Mr. Post, would you like to Well, I'm afraid my question shows a certain optimism which may not be justified. In a way, your quote from Hausmann that mm. malt does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. Uh, indicates that my remarks may show that I'm looking into the pewter pot to see the world as the world is not. At any rate, uh, I'm a bit worried about your picture, or the picture you paint, that the future may contain a number of monolithic scientific dictatorships, and that there may be a groundswell in this, di in this direction, a groundswell uh, caused by human tendency to seek pleasure where it can be found, but I'm struck by the fact that movements of that sort are always far more complex than any of our attempts at characterizing them, and I think that perhaps in this complexity is, lies a ray of hope that the future may not contain such monolithic scientific dictatorships, and that the developments which we can expect in light of the various technological uh, achievements you mentioned may not lead in the direction of scientific dictatorships in the way you indicate. That this may depend to a great extent upon the nature or the characteristics of the nations in which these uh, results are first introduced. In other words, my question really is, when you project into the future and you say that the chances are very great of dictatorships of this kind occurring, could you qualify a bit more uh, what the chances are? Well, I, I, I say these, I don't think the chances are very great. I think they are there. And uh, I would think that one of the reasons why we may get more dictatorships than we like uh, lies uh, in a, quite a different field. I mean, with, the, uh, with large parts of the world increasing at 3% per annum in the population, uh, Goodness knows what is going to happen. I mean, for example, uh, I was in India last uh, autumn 
and that the, the whole uh, process of uh, setting up a decent society is essentially setting up a society in which temptations to abuse power and, uh, shall be reduced to a minimum. Uh, but uh, these uh, new techniques, I, I think, do uh, constitute a series of uh, very powerful uh, temptations uh, which to those in authority may be t finally turn out to be irresistible I hope not but uh, I think what you say is, uh, uh, is something which we have to think about I mean that uh, this might uh, be uh, applied with justification as you say in the highest patriotic and moral terms uh, even in uh, democratic societies, I trust not, but, uh, but one never knows, uh, particularly under conditions of extreme uh, military stress. It would appear, sir, that the type of dictatorship which you have outlined for us here today and uh, more detail in the Brave New World would uh, tend to be self-perpetuating unless there's a rise such a sharp social crisis as to disrupt the pattern of authority. Mm and break the, the hold which is being passed on from one generation to the other in these terms. Uh, but it would appear that the type of, of social crisis involved in large-scale warfare, whether it be nuclear warfare or otherwise, or the type of crisis involved in a widespread famine, etc., would tend to disrupt this pattern of dictatorship. <coughs> Therefore, would you say that it's necessary to have a high degree of social stability in terms of economic conditions, in terms of world peace before a dictatorship, of the sort you have described for us would be able to really imprint itself upon a population. This, I think, is very important. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's obvious that such a dictatorship, if it were going to survive, would have to guarantee the uh, adequate food supplies. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, and whether it could in fact do this uh, while the, the kind of, uh, of international tensions, whether, it could, whether we can expect a long-lasting dictatorship uh, within the context of nationalism, I don't know I, I don't think so, I think we can expect dictatorships to arise but not long lasting ones I mean I think that even the best organized dictatorship within the context of nationalism uh, is likely as you say to, to lead to uh, to break itself down because one side of the paranoid uh, state of mind will lead it into conflict uh, and um, w which will of course destroy it, uh, finally destroy it. I mean th this is a, is a very important point. And then of course another point which was made by Sir Charles Darwin in his book The Next Million Years which I think um, was one which uh, with, uh, in different terms I envisaged in Brave New World. I mean he, uh, he points out that uh, the human species is still a wild species. It has never been domesticated. I mean, a, a domesticated species is one which has been tamed by another species. Well, the, until we get an invasion from Mars, we shall not be tamed by another species. All we can do is to try to tame ourselves, that an oligarchy tries to tame ourselves. But the oligarchy still remains wild. I mean, however much it succeeded in taming the, domesticating the rest of the race, it rem must remain wild. And this was the uh, part of the um, fable, the dramatic part of the fable of uh, Brave New World, is that the people in the upper hierarchy, who were not uh, ruthlessly conditioned, uh, could break down. And, uh, I mean, this... Uh, uh, Charles Darwin insists that uh, 
because man is wild, he can never expect to, uh, to domesticate himself because the people on top will always be undomesticated and will sooner or later always run wild. Well, I, I think there's a good deal to be said for this, uh, uh, this point of view in, in, in regard to the permanence of any dictatorship. Yes, I have a question. Uh, I'm worried about a relationship that seems to exist between cost, consent, and control. Mm. If a government wants to control its people, of course, its job will be easier if they are more willing to consent, and the job will be correspondingly more costly if the corresponding consent isn't there. Uh, could you make a few remarks about the economic feasibility of introducing biological controls of the sort you talk about? I don't know. I mean, wouldn't it, uh, I would have thought in some ways it would be cheaper than maintaining very large uh, security forces and concentration camps and so on. Uh, that, uh, I mean, just as uh, in asylums, uh, chemical control is a great deal simpler and cheaper than physical control. I mean, the, the bad old days of straight jackets and uh, manacles and so on required quite a lot of uh, of uh, of people to handle the insane, whereas uh, the tranquilizers uh, seem to require much, much fewer. I mean that you can you can get uh, equal results uh, with uh, simpler and certainly pleasanter means. Uh, I have no idea about the uh, the actual cost situation, but I, I, it seems to me that it might actually be cheaper. I don't know. Yes. Uh, Dr. Huxley, did you adhere to the view or comment on the view that it's precisely the American society of Western democracy is uh, particularly susceptible to this type of brave new world for the following reason that uh, society is conditioned to adhere to a great uh, degree of social conformity. Mm. But in your period of stress, uh, this idea of conformity is further pushed. And uh, consequently, it makes it much easier to develop these techniques. And that, uh, it seems that politically, the extremities, uh, there's a growing feeling that we have to do away with the extremities, and we have to keep on going the central path. Hmm. And this would seem to me to make this much easier for a uh, type of dictatorship, as you said, to slowly, using the mass media that we're developing, uh, mold the population, plus the factor that in some of the other uh, type societies, you have less inhibition about the brutal uh, struggle for power within the top hierarchy, whereas here there would be some type of a, uh, inhibition due to the so-called legal process that has developed, which would keep men from then violently attacking the leaders. Uh, well, uh, the, <laughs> this business about. Uh, uh, conformity, uh, I, I just don't know. It's, it seems extremely difficult, uh, certainly for me, to judge whether there is a, a higher degree of conformity uh, here and now than there has been in other places and in the past. Uh, I mean, I would have thought the, the tendency towards conformity was to some extent offset by the enormous... Uh, a differentiation of function in uh, modern society. I mean that nothing could be less uh, homogeneous in function than 
a complex uh, modern society. I mean, people are doing extraordinarily different things. And uh, although there may be a pressure to conformity uh, in, the, uh, in the suburbs, so to speak, at home, there does seem a considerable pressure to non-conformity or to differentiation in the functional life of people. I mean, I have no idea to what extent one offsets the other and whether the, the conforming drive is stronger than the, the drive towards differentiation. I just don't know what the answer to this. I mean, the, I read about the... High degree of conformity, and of course, one does see that uh, uh, certainly, as compared with the 19th century, this society does seem to be more conformist. I mean, if one reads the history of the of the utopian colonies which were set up during the 19th century, uh, this, this is really extravagant. I mean, that it's inconceivable to think of anything like the Oneida community or Brook Farm, even. Uh, being set up today, I mean, that uh, this would be uh, so outrageous uh, that uh, uh, it would be impossible to imagine. And yet, in uh, these Victorian days, uh, there was this uh, freedom to, uh, to make experiments, social experiments, of the wildest character. Uh, again, exactly what this means and exactly... Uh, what the significance is for, for us and for the future, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, uh, I just feel so incapable of really understanding the, uh, the uh, unutterably odd facts of, of real life. I mean, I think one very often just has to accept them. There they are, and what really they mean, I don't know. Uh, I mean, perhaps this is one of the charms of history, that... Uh, one never really knows what it uh, what it means. Well, this uh, I mean um, this is finally related to the whole mind body problem. I mean, what uh, uh, we still don't know very much about uh, the relation of mind and body. I mean, I mean we know clearly that they're related to one another very closely. But exactly how electrochemical events in the central nervous system uh, turn into the G minor quartet of uh, Mozart, we really haven't the faintest idea. I mean, I don't think we have any more idea than uh, Aquinas or Aristotle. I mean, all we can say is that it happens. Uh, and we do know a good deal more about the nature of the electrical and the chemical events. Uh, but again, what the bridge is and the whether it's enough to say, uh, like the neutral monists, that uh, uh, the two aspects, the mental and the physical, are merely the same thing seen from different sides, again, I don't know. I mean, even then, I mean, how can the same thing look so profoundly different? That's something I, I don't understand. And in relation to the, the mystical experience, I mean, clearly the... Uh, this is correlated with uh, uh, electrochemical states within the uh, within the central nervous system, and uh, I would be all for studying these states. I mean, I think it's it's exceedingly important that we should know uh, about it. I mean, I can imagine a whole branch of science which would be called uh, a 
neurotheology or, or myco-mysticism. <laughs> uh, I mean, this sounds funny, but nevertheless, it's, uh, we have to be able to speak in uh, the same kind of language about the two, uh, the two aspects of any of these experiences, the, uh, the, the neurological and the uh, subjective. And then we, uh, I suppose, on the philosophical level, we have to make the decision which uh, uh, Henry, uh, William James posed for us. I mean, he says perfectly obvious that, uh, that a mind uh, is a function of the nervous system, but is it a productive function or is it a transmissive function? I mean, it does, as Cabanis said at the beginning of the 19th century, um, does the brain secrete thought as the liver secretes bile or is it some kind of valve as, uh, as James himself I think thought and as certainly as Bergson thought uh, through which a pre-existent uh, mental uh, element finds access into the human being I mean Bergson's view was that of course it was, it was a kind of reducing valve which uh, uh, permitted only those aspects of uh, universal consciousness which were useful to our survival as animals on the surface of the planet and as social creatures within a society uh, to come through. Well, I, I don't know. As James says, the, uh, the both points of view are quite difficult from a philosophical point of view to, uh, to justify, but the... Uh, the the transmissive view is no more difficult than the productive view and I, perhaps he's right I think my own view is that on the whole that he and Bergson were nearer the truth than the Cabanis but I don't know I have one written question here I'd like to read out here sir. Now, the population explosion is a grave danger to mankind yet the right to bear children is a right of free will the only apparent way to stem this explosion is by some large-scale kind of conditioning or external coercion. Yet this is also a grave danger. Is there any way out of this dilemma? <laughs> well, the way out of the dilemma surely has been pointed out in, in most countries of the, of the West where people voluntarily have uh, limited the size of their families. I mean, this has happened without any coercion unless you call the desire to... Uh, have a good economic life and to bring up your children well a coercion but I mean this has in fact occurred uh, and uh, I mean in this country uh, after having reached a low during the depression the birth rate happens to have gone up but I mean the point is that the, uh, the control of the size of families is now completely voluntary here I mean or more or less completely voluntary and which makes it profoundly different from the, uh, the people in the underdeveloped societies who are still going on producing ten children because the, the, the habit uh, persists that in order to, for three children to survive you have to produce ten but now if you produce ten children seven survive because of elementary public health uh, uh, precautions which have been brought in uh, hence, of course, the, uh, the enormous inc sudden increase, the, 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 the death rate which used to be in the upper 30s, as was the birth rate, has now fallen in many of these countries to 15 and 12 and even 10. So naturally there's an enormous increase. Uh, but uh, 
it is certainly going to take uh, some time to get people uh, to change their habits. I mean, uh, psychological inertia is is much more powerful than physical inertia. I mean, it's much easier to push a ten-ton truck than a human being. Mr. Post has one further question. Uh, yeah. You've spoken of the ends to which drugs should not be devoted, uh, such as increasing conformity, mm. making men more content with what is actually an intolerable situation, securing the power of a small elite, and so on. Uh, to what ends do you think these drugs should be devoted, granted that we have them? Well, I mean, uh, I think they, in the therapeutically some of them are very valuable. I think already, for example, uh, some of the so-called psychic energizers have done a great deal in the mental field. I mean, they, I understand from Dr. Nathan Klein, for example, that uh, in very many cases you can use some of these psychic energizers instead of the electric, uh, electroshock therapy. Uh, and people say that electroshock therapy doesn't do any harm, but I cannot believe that partial electrocution is good for anybody. Uh, and it seems to me a very good thing that if you, you can get people on a, a maintenance dose to get them out of these, uh, these awful catatonic and uh, depressed conditions, which you seem to be able to do. And uh, after all, there are many people, it seems to me, outside institutions who who uh, have tendencies in the same direction, which uh, I think uh, a, a genuine psychic energizer might be, uh, which could be used without harm to people, would be of immense value. There was even, it was stated a, a few years ago, I remember, that the Russians had a five-year plan for increasing mental efficiency by chemical means. I don't know whether this has gone on and what they've discovered, but it's, I would think it's probably on the cards that you could increase the span of attention, the, the amount of time you could uh, concentrate on things, the, um, the power of observation and so on, by chemical as well as by educational means. I mean, I think that there are a, a number of probably quite good things you could, could do. And then, again, in the case of these very strange substances like psilocybin and lysergic acid, I think there's a great deal to be said for, for doing what uh, William James talked about, for getting people to realize that the, uh, their ordinary sort of common-sense view of the world is not the only view that... Um, the universe they inhabit is not the only possible universe and there are other very strange universes which some people spontaneously inhabit I mean a man like William Blake obviously inhabits an extremely different universe from uh, that which most people inhabit and I, I think it's probably very uh, wholesome for people to, uh, to be permitted to realize this fact to perceive that the uh, the world of the mind is immensely large and that there are these very strange and extraordinary areas in them and, uh, and there are plenty of cases in the literature where the, uh, these kind of experiences have produced a kind of conversion um, the work which is being done at Harvard now by Leary in the prison uh, in the local prisons in Boston it's very interesting a sort of a series of, of extraordinary conversion experiences among hardened criminals have, have emerged from this and here again there may be I mean we don't know enough about the subject yet but they, there may be um, 
possibilities of very great importance here of, of sort of removing obstacles. I mean, the, the justification it was, uh, was stated by Bergson years ago when he was defending William James against uh, his use of nitrous oxide. Uh, a number of fellow philosophers thought this was infradig that an eminent philosopher should resort to these chemical means uh, which enabled I mean James remarked that uh, only under nitrous oxide could he understand what Hegel meant uh, <laughs> uh, Bergson said that uh, it must be realized that uh, the experiences which uh, Mr. James uh, describes are not caused by the gas the gas is merely the occasion the gas is remove certain obstacles which might have been removed equally well by psychological or psychophysical means, the so-called spiritual exercises of the various religions, uh, but uh, can also be removed by these chemical means and that if you can do so without doing harm to yourself so much the better. And incidentally it's one of the great uh, uh, tragedies I think in, in psychological research that uh, the James, I think in about 1905, uh, uh, made an experiment with peyote. Uh, and as he had a rather weak stomach, all that he got was violent vomiting. He says, I'm afraid I must take the visions for granted. I got only the nausea. And it's, a, it's an awful pity if he'd had a stronger stomach, which would have had this research beginning 50 years ago. But uh, his weak stomach prevented this, and we've had to wait till much later to get this thing really going. Now I want to express our appreciation to Mr. Huxley on behalf of all of those who are here for lest our augmented knowledge restrict our understanding. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I hope you uh, found that as rewarding to listen to as I did. Uh, and uh, as I was listening with you just now, it it struck me that, uh, and at least it, this is just my opinion, but uh, it seems to me that Terence McKenna is more in the line of Huxley than uh, of Leary, both in content and in style. And I'll play another Timothy Leary talk next week and uh, follow that up with a McKenna talk just to uh, help us all make the comparison. All three of them, of course, uh, were pivotal in the ongoing evolution of the worldwide psychedelic community. And we owe them uh, all a great deal of thanks for their pioneering and uh, sometimes risky work. All in all, uh, I think our community is uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. And Aldous Huxley was one of the greatest. Had you heard that uh, story about William James and Peyote before? I can't say that I have, uh, but one of the things that I liked about hearing Huxley tell the story of uh, James's weak stomach is the fact that, uh, unless I'm badly mistaken, it was Peyote that uh, Huxley ingested for his first psychedelic experience. 
I'm probably reading too much into this, but uh, I'm sure that I heard a little note of pride in Huxley's voice as he sadly noted that perhaps our work could have begun 50 years earlier if James only had the constitution that he had and could have held the peyote down a little longer. Also, I found Huxley's premise to be uh, frighteningly close to what my friend Richard Glenn Boyer is talking about uh, over at CognitiveLiberty.org. If you have any interest at all uh, in being able to maintain control over your own brain, you uh, owe it to yourself to check out the Cognitive Liberty site just to uh, keep up with the state of research in the field of mind control that various government-supported laboratories are conducting right now. And did you pick up on uh, what Huxley was saying just now about how it is uh, possible for a small segment of the population to control the majority? What he said was, Given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. For example, any demagogue who is able to get hold of a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is uh, really in a position to overthrow any government in any country. And my friends, uh, that seems to be precisely what the Bush-Cheney crime family has done. When you analyze the votes that Bush allegedly received compared with the total number of eligible voters, you see that he only got about 20% of them. But that was enough for the coup they engineered to take over the country for the past seven years of hell. And uh, so, as drugs such as the one Richard Glenn Boyer spoke about in our podcast number 99, do you remember that one? The drug that would keep you from ever getting high again? Well, people are actually working on things like that because, as you well know, psychedelics eliminate boundaries, particularly the political boundaries in your mind that keep you from seeing the truth. As Aldous Huxley said so clearly, our business is to be aware of what is happening and then to use our imagination to see what might happen, how this might be used, and then, if possible, to see that the enormous powers which we now possess, thanks to these scientific and technological advances, to be used for the benefit of human beings and not for their degradation. I wonder what he would think today uh, with the news that the American public is by far the most drug society that has ever existed. And I'm not talking here about illegal drugs. I'm talking about the whole range of feel-good drugs that your neighborhood doctor is pushing. You know the ones, Prozac, Xanax, Valium, among others. These are precisely the drugs that Huxley warned us about. Drugs that lull you into accepting the fact that you're on a treadmill whose only purpose is to enrich those who are already so rich that they don't actually uh, need anything else, but their avarice just keeps them wanting more. Oh well, it takes all kinds, I guess. I'm just glad that you and I aren't that kind of a person. And I guess in my case I should add the words anymore, because uh, there certainly was a time when I was on the greed train myself. Although I was uh, always able to convince myself that the only reason I wanted to get rich is so that I could uh, use my money to help others. It was a false dream that I was chasing, of course, and uh, fortunately I found our wonderful psychedelic medicines and was able to break down some boundaries myself and get a little better focus on life. And speaking of uh, focus, uh, you might want to surf over to fellow Saloner Barry Hoon's website at www.quantumdrawing.co.uk. 
as uh, Barry told me recently, I don't know where my drawings come from. I just sit down with a pad and pen, and after a couple of hours, I have another drawing. People tell me that they are so trippy, and they see much stuff in them that I should get them out there. And now uh, I'm one of those people who has seen some very trippy stuff in these drawings. Uh, so if you're looking for a new art experience, you might want to uh, check this out. And finally, I, I want to read part of an email that I received from our fellow slaughter Mojo, who says, It almost seems necessary to start putting together an underground community capable of merging resources in such a way that our tribe can demonstrate to the rest of the world not only that we can be responsible, but that we can show a better, peaceful, cooperative way of living. In my mind, just as important as actually getting to the Mayan ruins leading up to the 21st of December is maintaining the beauty of the setting in which the ruins exist. From an ecological standpoint, it would be horrendous for hundreds of thousands of people to show up in the middle of the jungle and start camping out without a game plan, which can not only protect the immediate environment, but can also keep the people there in a safe and sanitary living situation. In this sense, uh, we would need to embrace a scientific necessity for semi-sustainable mobile economy that is not only leave no trace, but is capable of reseeding hope for humankind living at peace with the world. It is my firm belief that something of this scale is possible within our amazing tribe. On the same hand, I am but a 25-year-old newly awakened spirit striving toward a better world. And Mojo, uh, like most people I know who are under 30 years old, you not only have some good ideas, but you also have the one ingredient that people my age are lacking, and that is the energy to turn those ideas into action. Although I can't say I've got any uh, good ideas myself about where to begin, like you, I, I remain confident that a Leave No Trace Society is certainly possible, and I join you and all of our other fellow saloners in that dream. Now, uh, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. Before I close for today, I want once again to thank my dear friend Jacques, the main person behind Chateau Hayuk, whose music I've used uh, here as our theme song for all 144 podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. Thanks a lot, Jacques. Uh, your music has been a perfect companion for these programs. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.